This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. As we transition into the spring, slowly, there's a big topic top of mind for the crypto community. That's right, tax season. Now, regular listeners of this show will know that I am somewhat obsessed with taxes. They shape so much of our policies and institutions, and they've been at the center of some of the fiercer debates around crypto. For example, those who followed the infrastructure bill discussions may recall that the controversial reporting requirements had a lot to do with the potential tax revenue that could come from crypto transactions, which the Joint Committee on Taxation estimated would bring in nearly $28 billion over the next 10 years. In the end, the infrastructure bill did make it out with a provision that requires, quote, crypto brokers to report customers' crypto transactions starting in January of 2023. This will happen through a form that's a staple in the traditional financial world, the 1099B. To get a little wonky here for a second, the 1099B is a form that reports capital gains and losses, usually for securities or properties. This is how the government knows how much a person has earned or lost, which is key to establishing their overall income for tax liability purposes. As we've seen many times before, this is an example of retrofitting old rules and concepts with a completely new world of digital assets. Needless to say, taxing crypto is a complicated prospect, opening up a range of challenges in regards to tracking and valuing transactions, and figuring out where the lines ought to be between the need for accurate, accountable reporting and that fundamental principle of crypto, privacy. We'll be diving into these during this week's conversation. Now, I will reluctantly concede that I'm somewhat alone in my interest, nay, obsession with taxes. It's not exactly everyone's favorite dinner table topic, but I feel validated that Coindesk has recognized its importance in designating this week as Tax Week. As in other theme weeks on the site, readers can access a host of insightful articles and content that delve into the challenges posed by taxation and some of the solutions being offered up. In addition to being surprisingly readable, there's a real news you can use aspect to the package for this time of year. One of today's guests has contributed to that package. David Kemmerer is co-founder and CEO at CoinLedger, formerly known as Crypto Trader Tax. He penned an op-ed for Coindesk that looks in more detail at the 1099B requirement. David points out in his piece a core problem with these reporting requirements, that to force brokers to seek out and deliver information that would properly calculate the profit or loss on digital assets would undermine the privacy aspect of crypto transactions. And that's kind of the point. That's why we're also bringing in Dan Jeffries, a popular blogger and podcaster and another contributor to Tax Week. Dan looks at future trends with a special lens of privacy. And in an op-ed for last month's Coindesk theme, Privacy Week, he painted a grim picture of Web2's privacy invasions, but also offered a hopeful vision of how crypto-driven inventions, like, for example, ZK Snarks, could offer a way out. I'm excited about this interesting pairing, but before we get to our guests, let's break in my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi, Sheila. Taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you joke, but there really are the underpinning of our financial system. I, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand. You know, this is actually something that being in the blockchain space has taught me. So tax taxation is an element of accounting. I was actually an accountant a brief period of my life. I left college, my first job out of college, and I just had to run away. It, it drove me nuts. I traveled. <laughs> I days of you, you chose accounting. <laughs> it, it is. People don't do find that a rather hard one to reconcile. But 
it was actually valuable because it did just teach me a lot. And it's interesting, once I finally got around to embracing you know, crypto and looking at sort of the idea of record keeping, and I realized accounting's like critical to civilization, actually, like the, the very first ledgers in history go back to the Sumerian tablets. And so I can think about taxes in that, in that same framework, perhaps, right? That there's this sort of like core element. In fact, people talk a lot about taxation power of governments actually being this one thing that makes, you know, fiat currency almost unbreakable as the foundational right. aspect of how we use our money. And, you know, that's one of the challenges I think that sort of decentralized cryptocurrencies face is they don't have that power. And so how we deal with that is actually a very, very core problem. So it, yeah, we can dismiss this as being something that's like death and taxes inevitable, <laughs> but we don't want to talk about it, but really, really actually very core to these basic ideas about how money sits within society. So the idea of taxation runs a bit counter to privacy. The idea that you are responsible for reporting your earnings on a very personal level, right? Like the mm -hmm. source of those earnings and the timing of those earnings in many cases to the government. I mean, that's yeah. something that people don't necessarily think about, but there's some tenets of privacy that are kind of uh, being yeah. outlined there, right? Some assumptions about what should be private and what shouldn't be private that we've agreed to as part of a functioning society. So Really looking forward to getting into all this with our guests today. And so, David, why don't we bring you in first? And maybe you can just kind of address this core problem of the reporting that you talk about a bit in your piece between the movement of assets into self-custodial wallets and exchanges and all of this. Why don't you walk us through all of that? Yeah, you putting monologue was, was spot on. Essentially, what we're seeing, and it's not a surprise that we're seeing it, is regulators are really starting to pay attention to digital assets now, you know, much more so than when I first got in the space, call it five years ago. And that's not a surprise. You know, they're trying to fit current regulation that applies to similar types of property, right? Crypto and equity stocks, right? They're both forms of property. They're actually taxed very similarly. So it makes sense why the IRS sees this and they kind of want to, you know, retrofit the same types of rules that equity brokers are subject to when it comes to reporting the transaction history and the capital gains and income for their users onto this Web3 kind of crypto world. But as I mentioned in my piece, it breaks down in how crypto is fundamentally built, right, on these decentralized technologies, right? That's a buzzword, but it's true, right? Blockchains enable, and they kind of break down these third parties that no longer have to exist to facilitate these types of transactions. And so when you try to require these 1099B reporting requirements onto crypto brokers like Coinbase or Gemini or BlockFi, whoever it might be, they're not going to have all the information that's, that's needed to actually be helpful to taxpayers and to the IRS. So it presents a very, very big problem. And it's you know, my prediction that you know, as these get rolled out for tax year 2023, there's just going to be an unbelievable amount of confusion and pain that taxpayers who operate you know, within the cryptocurrency world are going to have to face. So what is the way out of this? I mean, unbelievable amount of pain and confusion doesn't sound very <laughs> enticing. Surely there's, and we're going to bring Dan in shortly to talk about what he sees as solutions generally, I think, for privacy challenges in the world at large. But like, is there a happy medium there? Is there some, and is there any willingness amongst the authorities to recognize this square peg is being jammed into a round hole and they're going to have to come up with something that actually has at least some respect for those privacy challenges. How do we get out of this? What's the yeah. compromise solution? Unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be some sort of compromise solutions until there's pain felt, right? Because 
this problem is not widespread enough yet. It's going to become widespread enough. And as soon as millions of Americans are kicking and screaming and making a lot more noise to politicians, that's going to draw their attention. But I sit in a unique spot, maybe you see what's coming because of the business that you know we've built. But I'm not sure anything in the next couple of years before this gets rolled out will solve for this. Now, I do think there's things that can be done that can, uh, you know, bring sensible regulation into the space and still satisfy what, of course, the IRS is trying to do, which is, you know, make sure people are paying their appropriate taxes for the income that they generate. But as you guys mentioned at the start, we do run into this unique dynamic where parts of crypto are competitive and at odds with governments, right? And there's no denying that. And so I don't have all the answers as to how these things will coexist. And so I don't have great answers of like, well, what can we do now? Unfortunately, I think I don't see a way out of confusion and pain, but hopefully that will, like it always does, make people take a second look and think a little bit harder about certain things. Yeah, but it's like forcing change through pain is, is, is sometimes the only way, unfortunately. So Dan, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts specifically about resolving that particular dilemma when it comes to, to tax and you know, being compatible with what government's needs are. But and one of the things that was, I think, compelling about your piece was there is a way out to the broader question of privacy and, and, and society's, I suppose, informational needs. This recognition that to function as a society, like let's just set aside whether we mean government or not in that, but just that we all need to be able to share information with each other. But through zero knowledge proofs and ZK snarks, there are now methods by which we can bring sufficient information to bear to actually resolve some of those challenges, but at the same time, protect privacy. So can you just walk through what that's all about, ZK snarks in particular, and then maybe entertain how, if at all, any of these sorts of solutions would apply to the to the tax dilemma that David was outlining? Look, there's a couple of articles that's in recent days, one that we talked about ZK Snarks, right? And we talked about privacy and you know whether I was bullish on it over the next you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, and I think the answer is I'm bullish in some areas and really not bullish at all in other areas. In other words, I think we have the solutions to be able to create incredibly functional privacy-based systems. And I think we've been fighting that battle for years. It goes back to the clipper chip and you still have the same thing. We just got new suitcases, you know, for travel, and they've got the special TSA lock, which seemed like, you know, a good idea at the time. You know, they'll have a special screwdriver that no one else has. And now, of course, we have 3D printers, and any idiot can go and open that thing on on you. So every time you put a back door in something, or every time you you know you screw it up for everybody, but there's always a short sightedness, right? There's a desire to stop the bad guys, whoever the bad guys are defined at that moment in time. I like to say that trust is a moving concept. You know, do you trust XYZ institution? You know, do you trust the Justice Department, for instance? Are you trusting the Justice Department, you know, went after the Ku Klux Klan and destroyed it? Or are you talking about the, you know, in the 1870s? Or are you talking about the Justice Department in the, the 20s that was one of the most corrupt ever and was taking a whole bunch of money from prohibition and, and doing things like that? The real idea is that it's individuals behind these, right? And so that you don't trust it, you trust the people sort of behind it. And I think anytime there's back doors to privacy, I think anytime there's, you know, a desire to like disrupt privacy, it can be abused, you know, much later on. ZK snarks are interesting when in that we've only used them for, you know, creating kind of an analog to cash, right? A sort of private money, but they can do all kinds of things. Like you can, 
you can create um, systems for logging into websites without ever sending a hash of the website uh, over the wire, right? By basically just proving that you know the answer uh, beyond a you know probabilistic shadow of a doubt. There's ways to do all the things that those early cypherpunks were talking about, right? Where you might share a bit of information with your doctor and you might share a little bit more with the insurance company, but not the entire thing. You might share a bit more with someone else, right? You can kind of slowly open the kimono, if you will, and make it a need-to-know basis. And, and DARPA organizations are actually working on, on platforms like that. I think we've just been too narrow with it. And we, we've just been too narrowly focused on crypto. I don't think we've taken a big enough picture. And you can really build those systems that the cypherpunks were talking about. In the short term, though, <laughs> the answer to the question is, Governments have no desire to compromise on any of these things. They're going to retrofit the things there. In my, my last article, the automatic tax man cometh, it's going to be easier to take taxes out, whether you like it or not. And the things are changing. It started as very libertarian movement, but how a movement starts and how it develops as more and more people get into the system are very different things. The only way that it changes is something I've said for years. The crypto ecosystem has got to grow into something where you have a bunch of industries that are not just trading money and trading a couple of JPEGs. It's got to be something where you have businesses that are huge, driving real value, and therefore have economic power to negotiate with other power, period. There's no, oh, we're going to come to a compromise. Why? Why does anyone come to a compromise when they hold all the cards and you hold none? That's essentially where it stands right now. And they'll retrofit crappy policies onto the current thing as, as much as, as they want. They won't think it through at all because it's something that's brand new and quite frankly, in, in many ways, is threatening you know, to the way that they, they view the world. So why would they compromise in any way in the short term? Practical and a bit depressing, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really argue with that. Nexo is a trusted and easy to use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 18% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. QuantStamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for QuantStamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company, Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. I really do want to kind of go a little bit deeper into this fundamental concept that there are certain areas of privacy that we just have kind of seeded, right? And I think taxation is one of them. When I think about what goes into an ordinary tax form, leaving aside 1099s and 1099B and, and, and even securities or property, just regular income statements, the amount of information that is given by any employer to the government on behalf of an employee, whether it's withholding or whatever it might be, and the kind of ability you have to make choices around that. If you're an ordinary income earner, I'm not talking about somebody that can afford an army of folks who can like go get in there and figure out how to avoid paying any taxes whatsoever, which I also have strong feelings about, by the way, in terms of being quite irresponsible. Nevertheless, it's a bit odd. And I, and I do think that when you 
bring that system and you contrast it with the entire notion we are trying to land and build and secure, I would even say within Web3 and within the blockchain ecosystem, those are fundamentally at odds. So I guess I'm asking more of a philosophical question, and I guess maybe I'll address this at you, David. You know, do you think there is a policy path? And you talked about this a little bit, but let's go into some more detail that can chart those two things, the real need for the government to kind of uh, recognize that where income is earned, government has an interest and ha- can use its taxation authority and power, which is given by the constitution, to make something of that on behalf of you know, the United States of America financially, with the kind of reason that a lot of people turn to these kinds of systems in the first place, which is at least pseudonymity, if not you know, anonymity, depending on the choices that you're making. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we could like unpack there. I do think there's a way to coexist, but in in the limit, like let's say 50 many years out, I do see cloud communities, these new technologies as becoming competitive to governments as we know them today. That does not mean governments are going to stop existing in my view. I think new types of governments are going to pop up um, that look very different than the governments that we've known for the past call it, couple hundred years. Now, it'll be a long, bumpy, winding road to get there. Maybe we won't get there. But the way that technologies and these types of technologies especially are being developed, I do think in the long term, they are competitive with governments as we know them today. So I don't know if if you'd want to like unpack that all or if that answers your question, but I do think they're at odds. Well, let's unpack it. You know, why not? (laughs) That's the beauty of this podcast. I mean, it is. It's a huge question. Is the end game here, you know, throw it out there. We've built new digital economies that have all sorts of value, true economies, right, that are operating digitally. You could say the smallest form of that right now is Axie Infinity, right? That's doing billions of dollars in transaction volume. And there's true value that have been created in this little digital world, right? People are willing to trade money for these digital assets. And so I think if you take that way into the limit, the the members of that new community are going to decide how they want to be governed, right? This is what you see with the governance protocols and all this experimentation. I just see the road that we're going, tax, it'll be more like value add, value add tax where like, it's like sales tax, right? The community decides, hey, every time you spend money in our um, community, whether it's Axie Infinity, it won't be that right in the future, but whatever your cloud community is, 0.02% goes into the treasury which is used to fund all sorts of things for the benefit of the greater good, right? This is how governments are set up today. But as we move into these new digitally native environments, you know, it doesn't make sense that my rules should only be dictated based on where I physically live in Austin, Texas, right? Why can't I be in a community with someone from, you know, Europe or New York, right? And we have our own system of how we want to be governed. I think it's very abstract. I think there's a lot of very, very smart people who have talked about very similar things like this. But then pulling back to more of the day-to-day at the ground level today, a simple solution that would potentially solve some of these cost basis issues with 1099B is like, hey, let's just do a gross proceeds B. Now we're flipping back where Coinbase, you're only in charge of reporting the total sales that your customers did on Coinbase platform. We're not going to try to make you report cost basis for, you know, what happened on Uniswap or Gemini. 
but you know, we want the information on the income for the gross proceeds. And then same with all the other folks. But yeah, I, like, I, like I wrote in my piece, the genie is out of the bottle on these technologies. They want to be decentralized. And I think even if heavy-handed regulators like the United States come in and force brokers to operate differently so that they can accurately report tax information, you know, the United States isn't the only country in the world. And so I think other countries will see that as an opportunity to attract capital, talent. Um, and so that's, again, you start playing out that mind game of like, well, how does this really evolve? I don't see a way that this doesn't become competitive with governments as we know them today. I certainly consider myself, you know, a more global citizen than not, and certainly, you know, understand the importance of coordination of global policy. It's something we talk about a lot on the show. Uh, nevertheless, I do live in the city of San Francisco, and therefore there are certain services the city of San Francisco does provide to me as a literal physical resident of this space. And so I think one of the interesting things that's going to be coming, it's already happening, and is an ongoing debate. This is what a lot of tax and trade treaties are about, right? Is like, where is your income tax? Is it taxed? There's a lot of very interesting corporate maneuvering around where corporations ought to be taxed on individuals. A lot of folks, you know, you have to kind of be very mindful of if you're a resident of, of state Y for some period of time, you can be taxed in state Y and in state X as your state of main residence. And so a lot of people have to track this. And especially with the pandemic, there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on, people kind of relocating for some time and then moving back or keeping a residence in, you know, different places or whatnot to be closer to family or whatever. And then that affecting their where they have to file state and local taxes. And so I do think that there's just, it's just important to land that point. Like we may, you know, think of ourselves as members of a community that is global or that is largely digital, where we may even be literally nomads, where we're roaming around from place to place. Nevertheless, for most people, it's going to remain the reality that there is one place that they have a physical, their physical being does spend more time than not, and that there are services they are using that are government provided. I don't see that changing like, ever, basically, literally ever, except for maybe people who are so ridiculously stratospherically wealthy that they can kind of escape, you know, hit terminal escape velocity on some of these things. But for the most part, that's the reality. And so I do think that when you're talking about transaction value that is exchanged purely online, where there's a person who maybe at the moment that they realize those gains, they're in Puerto Rico or the Bahamas versus in California or New York, right? There's an interesting question as to where ought that to be landed. Who's a taxation authority that ought to be pursuing the receipt of whatever can be realized on those funds? And this is kind of somewhat unsettled. There's ongoing debate around, you know, we won't go into like use taxes versus sale tax or anything like this. We don't necessarily have to go into, you know, the registrations you have to do. For example, if you're a charity and you're doing general solicitation of fundraising, technically you're supposed to register in all 50 states. That rarely happens because people tend to kind of do it at the end, they'll look and see, oh, where did I get a bunch of money from? I'll kind of register in those places going forward, as opposed to being universal about it. I just see this as being so incredibly complicated going forward, because the idea of where you reside and where your assets reside and where you, and separately, in many cases, the third place where you realize income could be three different things. So I guess I'm just curious, you know, what the, A, what the privacy implications are for that, uh, Daniel, maybe over to you, just kind of like right now, we generally, you know, self-identify as being residents of a certain state and we have some choice over the matter. We have to have an address and certain kinds of other markers. For the most part, you can decide where you live if you're a citizen of the United States of America. You can make that choice. But digitally, maybe you can't. It'll be the case that if you work with an exchange that's HQ'd in Delaware or HQ'd in the Bahamas or HQ'd in California, 
you are necessarily going to be considered a resident of that state. I, I don't even know how to think about all of this and the privacy implications that attend there too. So maybe Dan, we'll go over to you, just general comments on once your location moves into virtual land, let's call it the metaverse for sake of argument, what does that mean in terms of your ability to kind of mask where your physical location might be for security reasons that might be very real? So as a full-time nomad, I think about this stuff a lot because I don't actually have a, a physical address and I travel every couple of months and I do it all around the world. And I also, it's given me a good perspective on the power that individual nation states have over everyone's life and that how arbitrary some of those powers can be in individual places and the policies can be. I do think that crypto, uh, for instance, has the power to change some of these things that we do with privacy. I think it has the power to change the way that governments work over a, a very, very, very long time horizon. We're not talking about 25 years or 50 years, we're talking about hundreds of years, right? And governments have changed in the past. The idea that we all live under a nation state with you know, a patriotic song and a flag and a, you know, a sports team in our individual you know, you know, state or whatever it is, is a very new way of being, right? For thousands of years, people had either you know, smaller tribes or, or city states or you know, kind of their borders changed overnight when ex-conqueror came in and killed all the old guys and, and then took over and changed the monetary supply again and put his face on it. And then changed next year when the next conqueror came in and killed that guy, right? So borders shifted a lot more in the past, and uh, your idea of an attachment to a nation state was slimmer. Now the nation state is the dominant form in the world, and it's incredibly powerful. The economists have talked about that they're only getting bigger, they're not getting smaller. And the idea that any state in the current thing, I'm sorry, David, would allow you to like voluntarily choose like who you associate with, then not sure that you are understanding the power of the nation state currently, you know, which is basically the ability to kick in your door with guns and tell you uh, which people you're going to associate your money with. The challenge of it, of course, is that uh, over time, though, I think it is possible what you're talking about. In other words, that we can start to say that there's a more internationalization of how we see ourselves. And I would love to be able to see myself as an international citizen. But the fact is, I still end up paying taxes in one area or another, or I end up having to be a resident of one area in order to get medical attention or to get these types of things. It's super confusing and no government on the earth is prepared to deal with it in the current state. I think it can change, but I think it actually changes with you know larger forms of nation states banding together, almost in, a, in acting kind of like the EU, right? Where each one is in a sense working as a collective, right? And each one is kind of a sub-state and as money internationalizes, because it's not just going to be crypto, it's going to be central bank digital currencies that are probably the first form of international currencies. And believe me, they're going to have a panopticon into everyone's life and where that money is going, especially when they kill off physical cash, which is absolutely inevitable in the next 20, 20 to 25 years. There will be no physical cash, right? And maybe we're lucky that crypto acts as a parallel economic operating system to those things, right? And does provide that sort of privacy because there's enough, if you put too much pressure on the system, and people don't have any outlet to do things, and anything can be sort of geofenced off, then you start to see kind of a steam burst pop up somewhere else. And so I think there is a pendulum swing that eventually happens over a long enough period of time. But in the current state, you know, nation states are all powerful. And if you have any doubts of it, try crossing a border to another one and, and you know, try to become just sort of an international citizen, you'll see how difficult it is, right? It's just something where you will end up being somewhere. I think crypto makes it easier too to pay those taxes. I mean, 
once everything is digital, you know, once there isn't cash, once you have central bank digital currencies become the default in 25 to 30 years, which they will, all of a sudden now you have smart contracts that pay your taxes. So essentially, you know, your taxes are taken out automatically. And if you want to complain about it, you can call a helpline and complain about it for a while and wait for your money to come back to you. And if we think that crypto is going to save us from that, then you can just mandate with a law that like if you're collecting Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other like crypto that's coming out that you, you know, doing some kind of goods and service purchase, you have to have a smart contract that essentially takes part of it out for the government. So I don't think it saves us in the short term. Long term, maybe it evolves as we become more internationalized and we think of ourselves in that way. But I can tell you that 99.99% of the planet fully self-identifies with being an individual in physical space in one place for most of their life. And the idea that, you know, the 0.1% of us are sort of running around, you know, from place to place on the earth, we'll, we'll be able to change that policy in the near term, I think is, is, is unlikely. Okay, so first of all, I think it's useful to clarify, uh, because when you use crypto here, Dan, I think that word can be used in different ways, right? You were talking about the technology of crypto is actually the underpinning of CBDCs. Like people will say central bank digital currency is not crypto. It absolutely is. And it does have the powers that you're talking about. It will have smart contracts. And what you're saying, if I can paraphrase you, is that crypto, in fact, will make the effort for the government to track us and, and extract taxes from us actually easier, not worse. It'll, it'll be the opposite of what, say, the cypherpunk dream would be, but that ultimately the system and you know, may, maybe backlash and all of the sort of angst and everything that comes with that excessive power is will push us to this other world, right? Is that is that a reasonable summary? Yeah. In other words, yeah, it goes in the direction of the pendulum swings in one direction, then it swings back, right? We go mm-hmm. from centralized to decentralized yeah. and back again in history. And when it pushes back in the other direction, when, when you put too much pressure on it, if the left or the right, for instance, gets full power, right, then it becomes an unbalanced system. It becomes a system that, you know, essentially gets all of its policy desires and then kind of crushes the other needs for expression within the society. And then eventually that kind of has to burst up in a different way. So mm-hmm. I see that happening is that if you crush cash and you crush the ability to have any sort of privacy whatsoever and you enforce everything with smart contracts, at some point there is a steam burst. You know, there, there is sometimes a desire to disagree with the current policies of society and, and where the vast majority of people want to disagree with it. You can think about it during the you know, the time of slavery, when there was a huge pendulum switch to the idea that, you know, the vast majority of people didn't want that. You can, you can see it with marijuana policy in the way it's changed dramatically over the course of like many years, right? And so there has to be some kind of technological change that kind of affects it in the long term as well, once we've kind of gone down this path of it just being a hell of a lot easier, frankly, to, to extract those taxes from everyone. And maybe society becomes more transparent at that point, as kind of the older generation is, is replaced and, the, and a younger generation that grows up with these technologies is no different from a tree or a, you know, a bicycle to them. They've grown up with it their whole life, that it, it starts leading to more transparency and some desire for privacy after all that privacy has essentially been destroyed. So, so I'd like to just pick up on some of that there, Dan, maybe add a little commentary. And I'm gonna, I want to bring in David and talk specifically about some of these practical aspects of, of smart contracts and how they could function in a taxation environment. But I think it's just useful to like recognize that there's different conceptualizations of what a government does and what the role of the state. And, you know, it's funny, I used to live in Argentina and Argentines would say, Americans, you think that the government is an extension of you, that it is, it is representative and therefore whatever's happening is acting in interest. He said, in Argentina, we see it as the mafia. It is, is constantly in battle with us. And so you paying your taxes is something you reluctantly do. For the most part, you avoid it because 
they are the bad guys, right? And this conceptualization of the state as the other is a legitimate take for an Argentine. I think I often feel like this is the challenge of Western civilization. It's like, how far do we go from people assuming that this is all in our common interest to being one that's against mine? And so I just think it's really important to sort of problematize or not even problematize, but just actually just address it. What you were talking about there, Dan, from that perspective, because it's, it's not always the bad guy. It is San Francisco that provides those services and so forth. And one of the things I often think about is like, you know, we can think of any crypto system, you know, Bitcoin is one, as having its own in, is sort of like taxation and services function already, right? We have, there are Bitcoin rewards that are essentially, you know, a dilution of my holdings and therefore I'm paying a price through that seniorage to the validators for, you know, for the miners for what they're doing. And that's valid. But at the same time, there's all these externalities that <laughs> occupies a massive amount of conversation, particularly, you know, energy usage and then ultimately impact on the environment and so forth. And like, how do we actually pay for that? Right. And that's what a government traditionally often steps in is to sort of help for those things. So I just think it's fascinating. I'm not saying that, you know, you are right or wrong. I think this, this pendulum swing that you're referring to has to be understood somewhat in that context. I know I should probably ask you for a <laughs> reply, but I, I do want to bring David in. So I'm just going to monopolize my microphone here and then and do so. But David, like just maybe on that very much more practical point, this idea that, that, that Dan was outlining that, you know, crypto could be useful to the process of taxation, whether you want it or not, yeah. and make it easier. How does that play out? And are we going to see a world where there'll be this automatic smart contract structured thing and we all just let the system extract those taxes from us as it's designed? Yeah, I think that's exactly what is likely going to happen. I think I would just have differing views of how that may evolve. I don't know if anyone on this call would say governments are bad. Like I think governments are good. But I think if they're left in unchecked for long enough and they don't actually have to compete with anyone, you know, they complacency can sink in and they don't maybe do as good of a job serving their constituents. Right. And so I think, again, when I'm playing this mind game and the, the game theory of how this evolves, I think COVID is a great example to like to help extrapolate from. Right. Because pre-COVID, right, your physical location of where you worked was so important that metric has skyrocketed in terms of how much time we spend online. We no longer have to commute to an office. So now you see state governments competing for employees with each other. You look what Miami has done, really, like literally trying to poach talent from San Francisco. Now these governments are having to compete. I would argue that that is a good thing. But now what happens when that competition happens at a global scale and this trend of us living our lives online continues to accelerate and we see less and less value from physically being somewhere. Sheila, you're totally right. We will never be non-physical beings. But I just think if you extrapolate this trend, if you believe this trend of these cloud communities, such an abstract concept will continue. I don't see a world where these governments start aggressively competing. And what happens when that starts happening? Well, look what Portugal is doing. They're like, hey, no taxes on crypto. What happens when that's global? And, you know, Dan can go anywhere and live anywhere. Governments as we know them today in the very long term, I'm, we're all on the same page there. This isn't happening over time. I don't see how that doesn't change. Well, I do think you're going to see governments starting to compete the way they compete with businesses, right? And we had a whole episode on Ireland, Michael, where we talked about some of the purchase they took to tax, which is not necessarily the major reason that companies reload or, or HQ'd in, in Ireland, but certainly didn't hurt matters. And similarly, I think you're going to start seeing that 
for digerati, right? Like people who actually can uh, are working primarily in the digital space, whether they're making their money passively or whether they're making their money very actively, but who can be, uh, you know, self-described, uh, Dan, the way you are, nomads who can kind of work from anywhere and have a lot of flexibility. I think there is going to be some competition for those folks. And I think you're going to see immigration policy reflecting that. And you're going to see taxation policy reflecting that. And that's not dissimilar from what happened in the 60s in the US, where there was this big call for medical professionals to come from all around the world and only, only they were allowed in the country, you know, et cetera, right? Both for income generation reasons, because they were higher income earners that could pay more taxes, but because there was a shortage of medical professional staff and it was considered that was really important for, you know, American society. So you're going to see that kind of thing happening for sure. But there are always going to be a tremendous number of people, more, far more people than not. And I think this is true, no matter how far out you look on the time horizon, who are going to be rooted to the land for whatever reason. Maybe it's ancestral, maybe it's historical, maybe it's that they would have to bring a giant group of people with them that not not all can travel in that way. People care a lot about uh, families. They care a lot about community. They care a lot about all these things. They care about nature as we see climate change. We can't ignore climate change. It'll be less and less livable land for more and more people. What's that going to do? So all these things I think over the time horizons you're talking about are going to be major factors that play into, you know, what are the reasons people choose to leave the place that maybe they've been for some time and go somewhere else. And we've talked a lot about immigration as a general matter on the show and kind of how it has it is a forcing function in many ways, right? For other kinds of, of changes and other kinds of things to happen, whether that's people who don't want to leave because they're not, they're having a lifestyle where they have to go to make more income. If they can suddenly stop doing that and I need to cross a border to feed their families, or if they're able to work from a place that's maybe more desirable for whether or whatever reasons or closer to family or whatever it is, because they're able to do that because of the nature of their work. And, and that's going to be more and more enabled the further we get into the web three metaverse, you know, all of the above kind of, of world that we're entering. I think the question of what's going to follow what, you know, is tax policy going to be a driver of change? Is it going to attract people or repel people? Or is it going to be something that kind of follows as you see more and more, you've seen that we see this regulation. So you've got certain jurisdictions, Bermuda, the Bahamas, very crypto friendly, right? Miami, they're deliberately trying to draw that specific kind of talent and sensibility to their jurisdiction. There are others that really don't care or are in fact trying to repel that sort of element, you know, that kind of the, the rabble rousing element, let's say of crypto folks, right, from their jurisdictions. And but most people I think aren't kind of paying the right attention. So I actually think that you're going to see tax policy that follows a bit the tracks that people who are crypto native, and I agree with, I think it was you, Dan, who said it's going to be demographics. So younger generations who are who are raised to be crypto native, where they choose to settle and make their homes and lives, I think is going to be something that's going to force a reckoning with what ought our tax policy to be now that we have an influx of these folks for whatever reason. And I think you're seeing that a bit reactively in some places. I don't know that I would say that Austin is necessarily trying to draw crypto talent. It's drawing tech talent and has been for a while, but as crypto talent moves there, you're going to have to figure out, like, are you going to be issuing state level? I mean, this is Texas, so the answer is no. But you know, if it were not like Texas, which is kind of anti-state income tax, would you be issuing some sort of you know, taxation on this stuff, particularly as you get more and more of that being the source of income for a lot of people. So I don't know, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops over time. When I, when I think about this, you know, I don't even try to predict 25 years out, like some of the time horizons we're talking about here. I'm even looking like two to three to five years out, right? Are we going to see this continuing influx of folks into the Miamis of the world and, and places that are trying to draw the sort of talent? Or are we going to see people 
maybe reverting and moving back to, you know, where they grew up, their families, their other networks, whatever else it might be. And how's that going to affect people that don't have the ability to be mobile in that way, who are being left out a bit from this entire new economy that's being developed online? What's going to happen to all of them, right? Are they going to be left holding the bag on having to provide then services for maybe even more people who aren't accessing this kind of wealth generation, which is like kind of unprecedented? I don't know. Michael, I'm sure you have thoughts on all this. I'm curious to see what you look. Let's bring out Jesse and like I don't know. I, I think that how we divvy up the goods, the win, the winners and losers. I mean, Dan. I mean, there often feels in crypto that there's a winner takes all element to all this. Taxes have traditionally been a way for addressing those distortions. How do you see fairness, I suppose, playing out in a crypto context? Well, look, there's a number of different things here that we've kind of touched on. Number one, we are seeing kind of a a rewriting of work. David is totally correct, you know, in terms of thinking about there is sort of a rewriting of how a lot of people do work. And I would think there's kind of a division between sort of knowledge workers and folks who are sort of physically rooted to their job. And there's always going to be people who are physically rooted to their job. You know, my lifestyle, for instance, where I travel all the time and people go, oh, that's amazing. I wish I could do that, but I've got XYZ job or kids or blah, blah, blah. You know, my, my wife is tied to this. My husband's tied to this, et cetera. My kids are tied to this school. There's a lot of things that physically tie us to the world. I just went to a storage unit that I had for four years and finally cleaned it out. And I, I, I called the, the junk calling service and hauled away 99% of it. I don't even know who that person is anymore. But the vast majority of people, that stuff is a gigantic anchor that keeps them where they're at. And so I think you're going to continue to have that. But governments, by the way, have always competed for talent in a lot of different areas. Like if you look at immigration policy, let's be honest, there's the super rich person policy where they're like, great, you can get in here next week as long as you invest a million dollars. There's the super talented people you know, uh, policy that's like, great, you can come in here through the special door and you know, we really need talent in whatever it is today, nursing or you know, tech or artificial intelligence or soldiers or whatever it is during this course of time, that changes based on the people. And there's that special door. There's the door for you know, the average person. And there's a door for people who, whoever that government labels undesirable, which makes it as tough as possible and imposes all kinds of restrictions on there. And so I think there is kind of these divides between these different folks. And I think it's very hard to say like what the policies will be. The problem is when you do have this rewriting of work and you have a lot of people who actually don't need to go in one city, we're already seeing kind of the death of certain cities or cities and go into a period of decline. San Francisco's talked a lot about right now. Of course, San Francisco and every city goes through a lot of different ups and downs. This idea that it's like suddenly gone for good and, and there's no way it ever revives is kind of ridiculous. It's gone through a number of different evolutions from the turn of the century and you know Chinese immigration there and the battles with that. You, you know, in the, in the kind of Tong era, you have then you have like you know sort of hippie movement going there and kind of revivals, and then you have the a decline after that, and then you've got the tech movement, and then a decline again, right? So these things change over time. The thing that I'm concerned about is that if all the states do have to compete, I do agree it's a good thing. You have to provide different services. You have to provide different levels of taxes. The challenge is only that group that is mobile and the knowledge workers can take advantage of it. And if there's a brain drain in a lot of different areas, the people who are left holding the bag, right, are the ones who are rooted to those different areas. And if you can now work in any place, and it's no longer just a centralized city where they attract the minds who are those knowledge workers, and they say, look, and I'm already seeing it now with very like artificial intelligence companies I do a lot of work with in my foundation. They're very international. They're hiring people internationally. They're hiring people over the United States. It doesn't matter if you're in Idaho or if you're in San Francisco and people are moving all over the place. And that's wonderful. The challenge, of course, is then 
if you're in an undesirable place or a place that was formerly desirable, how do the goods and services get paid for there? How do those people get their things paid for without the taxation, which is fundamentally built upon where the person lives currently? That's really what it is all about. Everywhere in the world, it is about where you live. And so it is going to have to evolve in some way, because otherwise what you get is a super populist movement of people who are rooted in area, who are angry and who want to destroy everything in a way legitimately, it, it, because they're not being serviced by an area and their areas are in decline and they're, they're smartest people from their families and their people with the most skills and the most adaptability are going to go move to any other area that they feel like and leave them. And so there does have to be a way that tax policy changes to reflect these new kind of movements. I don't know what the answer to those things is going to be, but it will happen organically over time. In other words, just like a river sort of finding its level over time because it's going to have to, because you are right that the idea that there's going to be more knowledge workers who are able to move to a lot of different places is going to exist. But we're going to have to be able to take care of the people who can't move around all the time because they're just as valuable to society. Both sides are incredibly valuable and you have to develop a policy in a way of viewing the world that addresses everyone. Or you have a very unbalanced society that becomes what Michael was talking about, where you have kind of the dark side of it, the Argentinian government, where it's like the mafia and it doesn't serve you at all. Uh, governments are are not inherently good, they're inherently neutral. And they can go from evil, you know, at, at one extreme, right, to the Nazis, right, where we just enforce the policy on everyone to totally corrupt, to, you know, really, you know, neutral, to very benevolent, where it serves the, the group of the people and they can swing in the same thing back and forth. And one of the worst ways to allow it to happen is to, to create an imbalance that doesn't deal with the, the whole society as, uh, as a whole. Well, what I think we've definitely observed over the course of human history is that, you know, government, to your point, is not always benevolent, surely, and it's not always benevolent to you, right? It's benevolent to perhaps someone, but that person is not always self-identified as, as you see yourself as, a, as part of that community. So it's important that when we set up these policies and think about what we're advocating for, to think about, you know, what happens if it goes awry and what happens if we find ourselves in that a minority, usually, group that is not necessarily being prioritized or even seen in many cases by whoever is actively in power. And, and how do we make sure that we're protecting the rights of all, you know, as we, as we develop policies are going to have a longstanding uh, import to the way that we conduct ourselves, both as, as a society and individually, but also uh, how we think about uh, what we're doing with our financial resources. So David, any final thoughts on, on any of this? I mean, there's, we could go on for another hour, I know, but despite the illusion that tax is not a super sexy topic, I hope we certainly disprove that on this <laughs> conversation. But David, would love to get some final thoughts from you as well. No, I would agree with all of that. I think we're all just in very much agreement that the way things today work are, are probably not going to be the way they work 100 years from now. And we could go in and out of that time spectrum. It's very difficult to do. But I think you're exactly right. It's interesting to think through how something very pointed, like how you're going to pay your taxes, you know, weaves in and out of that narrative. So I, I agree. We could probably talk about this for hours and get very, <laughs> very meta about it all. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I couldn't have summed that up better uh, myself. So thank you so much to our guests, David Kemmerer, Daniel Jeffries, for illuminating this often complex and abstruse topic of, of taxation, taxation authorities, and how they really do provide incentives for how we all interact, even in ways that we don't necessarily realize. Uh, thanks also to my co-host, as always, Michael Casey, and to all of you, our loyal listeners. Come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest David Kemmer and Dan Jeffries. 
Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, money reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.